Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South, this is the Suwannee Review Podcast. My guest today is novelist Chris Bashelder, National Book Award finalist for the Throwback Special. He's also the author of the novels U.S. and Bear v. Shark, and a personal favorite of mine, Abbott Waits. A professor at the University of Cincinnati, Chris is a regular visiting faculty member at the Suwannee School of Letters. Chris, welcome to the Suwannee Review Podcast. Thanks, Adam. It's a pleasure. I wanted to walk our listeners through the craft essay you wrote for our summer 2019 issue of the Suwannee Review, entitled On Patient Writing, which I found so enlightening and generative as both a writer and a reader. I was wondering if you could begin by explaining generally the concept of patient writing, how you stumbled upon it, or what got you first thinking about it? Sure. It grows out of my interests as a, and my experience as a, as a teacher of writing, as a, a reader, and as a writer. And I think probably the origins were as a teacher, just looking at draft after draft, and the times in the margins that I've written slow down, which is in the thousands, and the times that I've ever written, you know, you need to speed this up. It's going too slowly. And I, I don't think I've ever written that, actually. So I'm constantly telling students to slow down. And I think I just started interrogating why I was asking them that. I knew it was right, but you have to start thinking about the rationale. Why, why is it right? And I thought about my own reading, my moments of pleasure as a reader when the prose slows down. And then my own experience as a writer when I discover my characters and my world when I slow down and start seeing things that I didn't know were there. You know, invention is a kind of seeing, I think. And it had gradually occurred to me that we don't slow down because we have things to notice. It's the reverse. We start noticing, you know, the pacing is generative. It generates the world. So I just, I gradually became interested in this idea of patient writing. And could it be considered a quality of prose? Could it be considered a craft element? Not just a uh, a characteristic of a writer, but of the writing itself, and then how to find it, because writers have different baseline paces. Us George Saunders stories moves really briskly, so his patience looks different on the page than um, sees the day, or it takes him um, 50 pages to get down to breakfast or something, you know. And then I started to think, like, how can you see it on the page? And, and the definition or the, uh, the formulation I gave it is when a writer gives a destination, when the next move becomes clear, but the writer doesn't go there yet, and what's to be gained. And so if you start looking at those moments in fiction, you can actually see what is gained in that zone, in that sort of anticipatory zone, where most writers, if you know the next move, you're, you know, when you're writing, you're desperate, trying to make your way through a draft. So it's really tempting to go there immediately to your point B. And there's a lot to be gained. I've found that my favorite moments in writing, uh, when the writer doesn't go there yet, and there's a kind of a, a glow or a charge to that material. We'll talk about this as we get further into the podcast and in the interview, but what struck me was your own awareness as you started to investigate other writers of when you were certain they were similarly surprised by the left or right turn mm. or the degree to which they'd slowed down. Mm-hmm. Your example that you begin the essay with is with a discussion of Stephen Milhauser's story, A Visit, 
set that story up for us and talk about how its initial gambits prepare the ground, as it were, for patient writing. Sure. So it's in first person, and, the, and in the first sentence, you learn that the narrator has received a summons from an old friend named Albert that he hasn't seen in nine years, I think. It's an old college friend. And even though it's been nine years, he still considers Albert his best friend, we learn pretty quickly. So we know something's up with this narrator. Turns out the narrator's life has gone on a conventional path, and he's sort of unhappy with that. And Albert was always sort of an iconoclast. So he hears from Albert and that Albert has taken a wife, and he's fascinated, and he very much wants to go see Albert, but he very much doesn't. There's a great engine of ambivalence here. He cancels his plans. He heads north. That's the end of the first paragraph. Albert draws him a map. You know, I love these these hand-drawn maps because we don't have them anymore. <laughs> there should be a museum of hand-drawn maps. They're, they're so beautiful and they're gone. <laughs> Undergrads the, the, don't know the what Google they are. Google Maps archive. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so Albert drew, drew him a terrible, inaccurate, imprecise map and he's on his way. And then there's what a writer friend calls the page two move in fiction where you get the thing up and running and then the page two move is back up and tell us you know, the exposition we need to know in the backstory. So we learn about the relationship. And so that's it. He's headed to a clear destination, established early. He's headed to Albert's house. We have no idea what he's going to find there, but we know the story is at the house. So most writers would be in a hurry to get to Albert's. You write ambivalence in fiction can be a source of drama. And then you also go on and quote Joan Silber. Time, she says, draws the shape of stories. It seems to me that these two observations are related and also point to how patient writing works. Talk about that a little. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the first thing I look for now, whenever I read, is the novelist's or the short story writer's sense of time. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's been said before, I think time is perhaps the central problem for a fiction writer. I mean, not as a philosophical category, but as a a structural nuts and bolts problem. Where do you start your story in relationship to its climactic events? You know, how do you handle backstory? Silver's book is really good. And what's its sort of metronomic proceeding after that? Yes, exactly. So time, the shape of the story, this is a visit. We know that the story will be the visit, the time of the visit. It's coded there in the beginning, everybody wouldn't, you would just know it implicitly as a reader that this, this story will end when the visit ends. So there's a way in which that shape, which is very handy for a writer, is also a powerful current that the writer has to struggle against a little bit, I think, because the story, I think I write in the essay, the stories, stories don't want to imitate life. Stories want to imitate stories. Stories move. There's a powerful formal push for a story to go beginning, middle, end, you know, and so while it's tidy and handy and it helps the reader understand the shape of the story, it's a journey story. On the other hand, if I can tie ambivalence in, ambivalence is the the narrator is a little bit of a, a fish on the line here, He's struggling a little bit. And ambivalence can give you zigs and zags when the story wants to move like an arrow towards something. Yes. You write in, in the essay, you say, the story needs to get to Albert's house. There's a strong, dramatic current pushing writer and reader there. It's perhaps useful to pause here in the third paragraph to consider that many writers would be at Albert's house already, knocking on the door, shaking hands, observing the changes wrought by time, trying to get a glimpse of Albert's wife. But you're arguing for something else. You call it imaginative deferral. What does that mean? Maybe a better question is, how does imaginative deferral function. 
I'll just read the passage from Milhauser. I think it's fairly convincing. He has, I believe this is the third paragraph, so he's established the journey shape, he's established his ambivalence, he's backed up and told us about the relationship with Albert, and here's the third paragraph. He's on his way to Albert's house. And as I say, a lot of writers would be at Albert's house already, particularly given what's waiting at Albert's house. The town was even worse than I had imagined. Slowly I passed its crumbling brick paper mill with boarded up windows, its rows of faded and flaking two-family houses with sagging front porches where guys in black t-shirts sat drinking beer, its tattoo parlor and its sluggish stream. County Road 39 wound between fields of Queen Anne's lace and yellow ragweed, with now and then a melancholy house or a patch of sun-scorched corn. Once I passed a rotting barn with a caved-in roof. At 3.2 miles on the odometer, Albert's map has said three and a half miles more or less, I came to a weathered house near the edge of the road. A bicycle lay in the high grass of the front yard and an open garage was entirely filled with old furniture. Uncertainly, I turned onto the unpaved drive, parked with the motor running, and walked up to the front door. There was no bell. I knocked on the wooden screen door, which banged loudly against the frame, and a tall, barefoot, and very pale woman with sleepy eyes came to the door, wearing a long, rumpled black skirt and a lumberjack shirt over a t-shirt. When I asked for Albert, she looked at me suspiciously, shook her head quickly twice, and slammed the inner door. As I walked back to the car, I saw her pale face looking out at me past a pushed-aside pink curtain. It occurred to me that perhaps Albert had married this woman, and that she was insane. It further occurred to me as I backed out of the drive that I really ought to turn back now, right now, away from this misguided adventure in the wilderness. After all, I hadn't seen him for nine long years. Things were bound to be different. At 4.1 miles on the odometer, I rounded a bend of rising road and saw a shadowy house set back in a cluster of dusty-looking trees. I turned into the unknown dirt drive, deep-rutted and sprouting weeds, and as I stepped on the brake with a sharp sense of desolation and betrayal, for here I was, in the godforsaken middle of nauseating nowhere, prowling around like a fool and a criminal, the front door opened and Albert came out, one hand in his pocket and one hand waving. Okay, it's such an amazing passage. You're going to talk about imaginative deferral, but my goodness, that passage is such a perfect example of ambivalence creates drama. Absolutely. Because there is contained in it, just by that unexpected wrong turn, as it were, an overwhelming sense of foreboding. Yeah, absolutely. And that's its function. In the essay, I say that there's no plot function of this. If plot can be conceived as a causal chain, nothing is eventuated from this trip to the wrong house. He still gets to Albert. So it doesn't, you know, it's a cul-de-sac in terms of, I mean, almost literally, he just pulls in. Uh, so it doesn't lead to anything, but yeah, it's it's through pacing, there's such, you're right, it's mood and it's atmosphere and it's drama. Imaginative deferral. <laughs> yeah, and... Just not getting there yet. I love the idea of not getting there yet. I love these pink curtains. I love this bicycle. You know, this is the stuff. I mean, I may be perverse as a reader, but this is the reason I come to fiction. It's so pleasing, these details. And you mentioned earlier my near certainty. And perhaps this is ludicrous to say this, but as a writer, I feel nearly certain that Milhauser didn't know about those pink curtains before he started that paragraph, before he started the sentence, maybe. Oh, I mean, I feel like as a fiction writer as well, I know exactly what you mean. And it's that moment you feel when you're writing when, when there's that lift mm -hmm. of pure invention. Mm -hmm. You say you write that the scene constitutes what James Wood calls the life surplus of the story, the riot of things beyond order and form. It's a recurrent motif in the essay that patient writing points to all that is unknown beyond the frame. 
As a reader, I'm most excited by that life surplus idea, the stuff that sticks out, the stuff that, I mean, it's complicated, and I've spent a lot of time with this passage, but I think he just, he says literary form can kill, uh, it can deaden when you take the riot of life, the chaos of life, and you submit it to literary form with the beginning, middle, and end, it deadens it, and what he says about detail, and I'm tying it to patience because I think patience generates the kind of detail that he's talking about. What he says is that sticks out, it overruns the form of the story. And so for me, I mean, I, yes, it's hard to talk about strong writing in general, but that's uh, living writing, live writing. To me, strong writing, I feel that sense of surplus. I don't want to go too far with a musical analogy because I'm no expert, but similarly, there are certain kinds of classical musicians who, composers, you can extend this to jazz, who have that level of tension mm-hmm. that you're describing, mm-hmm. that riot of things beyond the form. Mm-hmm. I mean, riot of things beyond the form to me is is Coltrane Mm -hmm. versus the light kind of like touching down of Miles Davis. Mm -hmm. That riot of form is to me at times someone like Bellow or Stanley Elkin. Mm -hmm. The riot of things beyond order and form can be Monroe Mm -hmm. at her absolute wildest where, you know, she stumbles into a scene that just goes into a direction that just seems not even anticipated by any aspect of the story. Are those Is that kind of what you're talking about? Definitely. So if we teach fiction, we funnel students toward form, trying to get them right. to understand how narrative works. But I suppose if that's all they did and did it well, it wouldn't be enough. <laughs> you know, I mean, they, they have to understand form and we have to move them toward an understanding of narrative structure. But it's also really important to know that that's not enough. And exploit the tension, with jazz certainly in a lot of music, exploit the tension between... Um, Form and surprise? You invert the idea of cause and effect with regard to pacing. Pacing is the cause, not the effect of observation. You go on to make what I thought was an especially fascinating point. The story you write would work without this interlude, but it would be ever so slightly less authentic, ever so slightly more fictional. So what's the relationship between the slightly less authentic and the slightly more fictional? Are you talking about You're not just strictly talking about contrivance, are you? No, I think I'm talking about conviction, the writer's conviction. The writer's conviction in the, because it's a silly enterprise in a way, that fiction, we all sit down and it's a made up story and the reader knows it's made up. We're asking them to believe it. We have to believe in it. So I think it might be a point about conviction. And when I read that thing about the bicycle and the pink curtains, what I see is a writer convincing himself that his world is real and he's believing it. I have those moments as a writer when things get, the lift you talked about earlier, that's the good version. The bad version is things start to feel real thin and real made up, and the paragraph needs some more coats of paint, needs some surprising observation, needs something to get me back in and believing. The story works as a story if you keep going without these moments. I think I call them, they're necessarily unnecessary or something. You know, when we had, I think you'll like this because it's related to patient writing, when Garth Greenwell was here on the podcast, He talked about how when he discusses students' anxieties about freighting their settings with symbolic meaning, Mm -hmm. in fact, what he says is, trust your own literalness. Now, trusting your own literalness, the way I understood it when he said that, and I think it's very much related to what you're saying, is trust the bicycle, trust the pink curtains, trust the pale woman, These are the times, it seems to me what you're saying, when imagination is directly feeding you that stuff, which is the detail of patient writing. Yeah. And if it ends up being 
obviously symbolic or allegorical in some way, fine. Because if you've earned it at the level of, I think a critic said, I mean, Malamud was a deeply allegorical writer, right? But a critic said about him that his, that his work had pebbly reality. And I like that pebbly part because that's the part that's going to uh, win over readers and excuse the symbolism, if you know what I mean. Because we don't want the sense that a writer is going for the symbolism or the going for it without earning it at the pebbly, at the pebbly reality. I mean, one of my favorite books is this book called uh, Pilgrim Hawk. And uh, who's it by? It's by um, Glenway Westcott. It's a short and it's like a novella length, but you what know, great title. Yeah. And so it's a visitation story. It takes place in an afternoon, but the, a woman comes in, talk about a book about chaos, admitting chaos into it. But a woman comes in with a hawk. And I mean, as the book goes, it's clear that the hawk is a symbol, right? But the hawk is so carefully observed and so closely watched and it's just your literal self it's a real hawk you know it convinces me at that level that it's real and then if it if it lifts up to the interpretive or symbolic realm great but it's real at the uh, down low i talked to my students kind of altitude metaphor stay low mm-hmm. that's the same thing as what you're saying so i mean i guess we already covered this but i mean do you have an awareness of when this is happening in your own writing or is it an act of rewriting or both in terms of the process and recognition and the you know the oscillation the the dialectic between writing and rewriting how does that work for you? Or can you give us an example from one of your books where you you found your way into patient writing while you were rewriting? Hmm. Let's see here. I would say first, that is something that you can carry over from book to book is a commitment to pacing and a comfort or some comfort in uncertainty that I think is a big difference between an apprentice writer and an experienced writer. Everybody's lost. Everybody's lost. But the veteran writer is going to be more okay with being lost and maybe not in such a big hurry. So that is something you can carry over. Your new book is always going to have structural problems. It's always going to have problems of stance and strategy. Those are things you have to figure out. But you can be more comfortable maybe in an an uncertainty and commitment to going more slowly. In terms of like, so with Throwback Special, I knew it was going to take place over a weekend. Probably, I think it's less than 48 hours. So I knew that the culmination is built in, point B. And I wanted it to be a novel. You know, I'd written some stories that didn't work. I knew it was a novel. So my pacing is actually coded in. I know how slowly I have to go. It's a novel and I'm, it's going to take two days or something like mm-hmm. that. So it's just all the things. You have to find the things like combination lock. You have to find the point of view and the stance and the pacing and the structure. You have to find all that and they have to work together. But that was one of the really early things that I just knew was uh, I was going to be committed to. I couldn't get there too quickly. I just couldn't <laughs> if I wanted it to be a novel. And then clearly I was interested in more digressive and slow anthropological approach to the book. Of course you have written short stories, but I've never, you don't seem to traffic much in short stories. Yeah, I, um, I love them. I read them. I teach them. I consider myself sort of knowledgeable about how they work, but I've, I've written them, and I've, but I've never collected them in a book. And I'm much more committed to the challenge in architecture of the novel. By architecture, you just mean the capaciousness? Yeah, 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 I think so. And it's nothing against stories. If I could write great stories, I would. Many of my one, two, three, three of my book length works started as failed short stories. Oh, yeah. But I didn't answer your question. Sorry about that. No, 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 uh, go ahead. uh, Rewriting. Yeah, yeah. Revising is, I don't know if I have a specific example, but revising is so hard. And I often tell students, again, to go back to the altitude metaphor, to get in low somewhere. Don't get in at a conceptual level or a really high level. Get in at the ground level and revise from there. I mean, I do, that does happen in revision for me. Sometimes if it's built into the book, I just know I'm moving slow. But it does happen in revision where I go back in between two paragraphs. Well, there you go. You know, exactly. And pull them apart. Exactly. Well, I mean, there could be an element of drafting, which is almost like reconnaissance. Yep. 
you know, you do a flyby on what is actually potentially a fantastic but not fully explored scene mm-hmm. and then open it out from yeah. the middle. Yeah. And that's what I was wondering about vis-a-vis patient writing and your rewriting process. We talk so much about sentences and we talk about chapters. The paragraph is such a great unit to talk about. I don't think people talk enough about paragraphs, so that's fun to talk about too. But as a unit of drama or as a unit of transition or, I mean, I'm fairly, because again, especially in throwback, I was not in any hurry to get where I was going. So my drafting was pretty slow. But I would also go back in, and the way you're saying, the reconnaissance mode, open up paragraphs and find, if one paragraph had gone from A to B, find another way there. Pretty clearly it became clear to me that the book was about not getting there. And, and I'll just say the really tricky thing about if you go in and revise and you discover something, this invention, that's so exciting. That thing is there for you now. Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room, located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings. Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at library.sewanee.edu backslash Ralston. I was wondering, do you watch a lot of stand-up comics? And the reason I ask is because there is not a riffing quality to your work, but it's not exactly a shaggy dog quality to the work, but there is a Jenga tower (laughs) quality Mm -hmm. to the work that I feel like the best comics deploy. And so satisfyingly, the best comics to me, Dave Chappelle is is a miracle worker Mm -hmm. at this, builds the Jenga tower and then knows exactly which piece to pull to make it come crashing down. Amy Hempel also talks about her absolute love of mm. great comedians. I was huh. wondering if you see similar forms oh, of... D- oh, I definitely am interested, not in an exhaustive or thorough way, but I'm definitely interested in stand-up comedy, and uh, especially when you learn about the joke writing, behind-the-scenes stuff about joke writing, and then t- taking jokes on the road, and working it over and over and over and over, the work of it. Yeah, I'm fascinated by that. It has everything to do with, uh, I mean, comic writing involves a different timing is different on the page than it is on a stage, obviously. But yeah, I'm completely, I am fascinated by that. I like that metaphor of the tower and uh, of building, building jokes. I'll tell you something that really struck me when we first met. I guess it was, was it three years ago or two years ago? Uh, 16. At the time, Throwback Special had just come out. And at School of Letters Reading... I hadn't read Throwback Special yet. You read from Throwback Special. The reading was hysterical. I don't know if when you were choosing that particular passage, doesn't even matter what passage it was, but you thought of it as particularly funny. But here's the interesting thing. When I sat down and read Throwback Special, absent your delivery, absent your voice, I found it, in fact, deeply, deeply sad. (laughs) Abbott Awaits to me was a regular laugh riot interestingly, but not throwback. And I'm wondering about your own awareness of the comic as it's operating in your work. My professor, Stanley Elkin, I think was always very aware of it. I guess what I'm saying is, do you know when you're being funny? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I have a sense of, um, to this point, almost everything I've 
written, I would categorize broadly as comic. And I can't imagine sitting down to write and not taking a fairly comic approach. I just, it's not even, it doesn't feel like a choice. It's just connected to what I do. But I have tried over the years definitely to complicate the humor, to not be satisfied with just a good one-liner or a good joke, make sure the humor is connected. My favorite comic writing or comic art is just, it's the flip side of, you know, Vonnegut is really smart on this in essays, just humor is the flip side of pain and sorrow and grief and anxiety. Vonnegut talks about never, I think four days after MLK was shot, he had, he was scheduled to give a talk and they went ahead with it at Notre Dame. And he said, I've never been funnier. I've just, everything I said was hilarious. They were laughing, but the laughter was an expression of so much pain and sorrow, you know. To me, when you say that, when people say that to me, I that's gratifying. Like the book, that's sad because I uh, I don't want it to be super merely merely funny. I'm really as interested as I am in patience and pace. I'm equally interested in tone as I get older, and, and I and I'm interested in complications of tone and alloys of tone. And I don't want to ever just be try to be merely funny. You discuss three other works in your essay, Dorothy Baker's fabulous novel, Cassandra at the Wedding, Elizabeth Mackenzie's interlinked collection of stories, Stop That Girl. You end with what you say is your favorite example, which is from Ray Carver's story, Cathedral. I thought you maybe wanted to talk about the different ways that story deploys patient writing and maybe what is for you that most exemplary moment. Sure. So, you know, here I am talking about Raymond Carver, I always feel apologetic about it. You know, what year is it? But um, <laughs> but I shouldn't, you know, I mean, and his best stories are great. And this is, and, well, this is such an iconic story, but um, it's a small moment and it's not a moment I've seen discussed. The narrator has a blind man coming to his house. A blind man coming to my house is not something I look forward to. He tells us early on, he's a jerk. He's defensive. He's derisive. He's unhappy in his life. He's drinking way too much. He's estranged from his wife. It seems like he hates his job. The story gradually enacts a reversal. So by Act Three, he's sort of uh, become uh, his his defenses have been worn down. He's emotionally vulnerable and sort of naked. His wife's asleep, and he's and Robert, the blind man, has they're on equal footing. And you can watch him kind of hit bottom. It's like eight stair steps. The narrator going down. He can't describe the blind. Robert wants to know what a cathedral looks like. They're watching television. He's trying to describe what a cathedral looks like. Think about the challenge of that. That's very difficult. He can't do it. Ultimately, he admits he has cathedrals don't mean anything to him. He has no spiritual resources. He has no resources at all. He's totally hit bottom. You can see it. You can see the exact line that happens in the story. And then Robert says, I got an idea, which is the exact same line, I think, from Anne Ransom, the character in Elizabeth McKenzie's story too. It's interesting to see the parallel there. I have an idea. So that's a, that's that move is going to get us toward the conclusion of this uh, this incredibly this lovely wondrous conclusion to an iconic American story. If Carver's conceived of this now, these two men are going to draw this cathedral together, this intimate beautiful moment. It would be really tempting to rush forward to do this. So it's just two paragraphs in the story that um, I write about in the essay. This is after Robert says, I got an idea. We're going to draw us one. We need a pen and some heavy paper. Go get it. So what I say is like Carver could have easily said, so I went and got the stuff. You know, it's been so easy to go get the stuff, but here's the two paragraphs that follow Robert's idea. So I went upstairs. My legs felt like they didn't have any strength in them. They felt like they did after I'd done some running. In my wife's room, I looked around. I found some ballpoints in a little basket on her table. 
and then I tried to think where to look for the kind of paper he was talking about. Downstairs in the kitchen, I found a shopping bag with onion skins in the bottom of the bag. I emptied the bag and shook it. I brought it into the living room and sat down with it near his legs. I moved some things, smoothed the wrinkles from the bag, spread it out on the coffee table. So that's it, and I just, I can't tell you how much I love those onion skins, you know. It's just, uh, I, I talk about them all the time to students. It's become a kind of shorthand for um, conviction that Carver could have just said, I went and got the paper, but he imagines the shopping bag, and even the shopping bag he doesn't need. And then he looks inside the shopping bag, and there are these onion skins, you know. I mean, just, it's a fully imagined world, but not fully understood. So I think one of the things we're talking about here is that patient writing creates a kind of vivid, it, it makes the world more vivid, but it makes the world also more mysterious as you notice more of it. So I just love that he, it's not a movie set. It's not a Potemkin village. You know, it's not a model apartment. It's a real bag. And you look in the bag and there's those skins. My second to last question, because I have a secret surprise set of questions for you, which come from your wife. Oh boy. <laughs> who I ran into yesterday. <laughs> I was hoping you might share with us a moment from one of your books where you felt like, you were executing patient writing like one of your heroes. Sure. And thanks for asking. So uh, this is not necessarily like a favorite part, but it's definitely a part. I remember composing and going slowly because I didn't quite know what was going to happen. And it's a, it's a chapter in Throwback called Night, and it's a short section. It's the shortest chapter. And I've always been attracted to scenes in books that occur in the middle of the night. It has to do with pacing. I think it has to do with time being out of whack. And so one of the characters has woken up and he has a nosebleed and he's reached over to get a towel or a tissue and he's, he's used his jersey to wipe the jersey he needs for the reenactment. He's used it to wipe his nose uh, off. So now he's got this white jersey that's just covered in blood and he leaves his hotel room. I think in my mind, maybe I was thinking toward a laundry room, but I didn't quite know. And I wanted this weird almost surreal midnight sense anyway. So he leaves his hotel room and I'll just read a few paragraphs, but of um, me moving slowly because I don't quite know where he's headed. And the details in this passage are certainly ones I didn't foresee. I discovered them as I went. Trent waited by the elevator, but it did not arrive. A door led to the stairwell. Trent closed his eyes and extended his index finger, touching lightly the braille letters on the sign beside the door. Repeatedly, he moved his finger left to right across the tiny raised dots. Stairs, he said to himself. Stairs. When he opened his eyes, he saw that he was reading not braille letters, but the knobby residue of pink gum on the wall. Astonished, he put his fingers back on the letters. He walked down the stairs, keeping his eyes closed. He could feel the layers of paint on the railing. He could hear the rain, the service road villainy the metronomic beat of Fat Michael's stride on the treadmill in the workout center. Through occluded nostrils, he smelled chlorine, though the hotel did not have an indoor pool. He put two feet on each step, a blind and barefoot man clutching a bloody jersey. After descending two flights, Trent opened his eyes. He looked first at the bottoms of his feet, then wished he hadn't. He saw a door marked Lobby, and he saw the stairs continue down. His eyes now open, he walked slowly down the stairs, another flight to a door marked staff only. Propped beside the door at the bottom of the dim stairwell was a wet bicycle with a basket attached to its handlebars. In the basket, a glistening bike helmet and a thermos. Trent laid the jersey across the bicycle seat. He unscrewed the two lids of the thermos and put his face to the opening. It was vegetable soup.
The steam from the hot soup washed his skin, and he drew the vapor through his mouth, deep into his lungs. He screwed on the lids, returned the thermos to the basket, and removed the jersey from the bicycle seat. I'll stop there, but that was, you know, uh, I talk about uh, Milhauser putting himself on a count, putting his character on County Road because it's slow. And I talk about it in the McKenzie story, the usefulness of a cluttered garage. A character goes into a garage to get something and how useful for fiction a cluttered garage is because it slows you down. The County Road slows you down. Carver even talked about his legs didn't feel like they were working right. Mm -hmm. You know, he's slowing himself down. So, like, just I remember pressing the elevator button in that hallway and the elevator not being there. I'm just trying to slow myself down and I found the braille and I found the gum and I found, you know, the, the bike and the thermos. That was all, to me, that's a great writing day, finding that thermos down there. Did you ever hear of how Sting wrote the song, <laughs> Walking on the Moon? No. He was drunk <laughs> off his ass. Uh -huh. And he started just wandering around his hotel room and said, and just kept saying to himself, Walking in the room, walking in the room, walking in the room. And, and you know what? Yeah. That's patient writing. Yeah, there you go. Because, you know, it's, it's, it, walking on the moon must be like being kind of drunk. Yeah, exactly. That was a good revision, though. <laughs> okay. That was a good revision. That walking in the room song yeah. just didn't, didn't make top 40. It doesn't have it. Okay. Two questions from your wife. Oh, wow. The poet Jennifer Abel. Jennifer Abel is a poet who we've published many times at the Review. She just won the Iowa Poetry Prize. Many congrats to her for the All book right. of Jane. I know you're going to blush at this, and it's maybe one of those controversial questions, pair of questions we've ever asked, but she wanted you to answer, what animal do you think you most resemble? Oh, God. And then what animal do you wish you most resemble? Oh, man. <laughs> that is rough. <laughs> Let's see here. I wish I were something... You know, I'm just thinking of myself on basketball courts and tennis courts, and I wish I were something sleek and aggressive and brutally fast and, uh, you know, in the cat family, maybe. Mm -hmm. And I'm afraid it's more lumbering <laughs> <laughs> or, uh, you know, manatee-ish mm -hmm. and uh, or a bear, but not, you know, not a tough bear like a Campground bear? So Campground you wish, bear. So, so you wish for shark, but really you're bear. Ah, uh, that's it. Maybe. That's it. But campground bear. Like campground a dumpster bear. bear. Dumpster bear. Yeah. Chris Bashelder, dumpster, <laughs> dumpster bear. bear. Last bonus question. Uh, tomorrow, Nadal or Federer? Oh. Nadal's going to win that. I think Nadal's going to win, too. I do. It's not necessarily what I want. I like them both, but I think I like Nadal's going to win that. I think he's playing some thunderous tennis. Yeah. Okay, Chris, I'm such a gigantic fan. It's such a thrill to have you here on the podcast. And it's a remarkable essay you wrote for us, and uh, I greatly appreciate your time. Oh, it's my pleasure, and I am uh, so impressed with what you and your staff are doing at the Swanee Review. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Swanee Review podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Swanee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at www.thesawaniereview.com. To discover what's happening at The Review, visit our website or follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages at The Sawani Review. Special thanks to our producer, Helen Wynana, and sound engineer, Alex Martin, with music by Annie Bowers. Until next time, this is The Sawani Review, new since 1892.